Thank you again, Senior Adult Choir. I always appreciate uh, the days in which they minister to us, which is normally on these Lord's Supper Sundays, and uh, have the greatest respect for each and every one of them. Uh, before I get into uh, today's message that will lead us into the Lord's Supper, uh, next week uh, we will begin a verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians um, that I anticipate will take us probably about uh, six months uh, to complete. Uh, So between now and next Sunday, uh, I encourage you uh, to read through the entire book of Philippians in one sitting. It won't take you any more than about 10 or 15 minutes. It's just four four little short chapters, but it's a a precious book. It's It's just a gem and, uh, and I know you're going to appreciate uh, the study, and I, I trust uh, God will use it to grow us in our relationship uh, with Christ. Now, this morning, uh, we conclude uh, a brief series that I've been doing on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, our primary focal passage has been Ephesians 5.18, that most of you are very familiar with, don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, the third person of the Godhead. It's not just a power. It's not some uh, special ghost or force. The Holy Spirit is a a person, just like God the Father, God the Son. And it's the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in the heart of a believer at the time of conversion. Uh, therefore, uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not you getting more of the Holy Spirit since you already possess Him. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit getting more of you under His control. So the filling of the Holy Spirit is all about God controlling the believer for the purpose of growing in and displaying Christ-like character, fulfilling God's will, and empowerment for witness and ministry. Now, in the previous message, we began to discover how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which we conclude today. Uh, We have already examined the first three conditions that a believer must meet in order to be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit, and we just briefly touched on the fourth and final condition. So follow in your sermon notes, and uh, I'll begin with just a very brief review of the first three conditions, and it will be brief. So if you missed the message, I encourage you to go to the church website, and there on the website you can watch a video of that message or any previous messages. The first condition that must be met in order to know the filling or the controlling of the Holy Spirit is to surrender to Jesus, to surrender to Jesus, where Jesus conquers the Spirit controls. What does it mean to surrender to Jesus? You see it there in your notes. First, you have to sacrifice what? All to Christ. Submit 
to Christ's authority in order to serve His agenda and to seek Christ's approval. Bottom line, I must relinquish control of my life totally to God for the purpose of building my life on the blueprint of God's Word. What's the second condition that must be met in order for a believer to know the filling or controlling of the Holy Spirit? I must maintain a clear conscience by confessing all sin to God, where the blood cleanses, the Spirit fills. Now, how do I maintain a clear conscience with God? Well, I must be honest. I must be very specific about my sin. I must be continual, uh, keeping that sin list uh, short, and then I must be complete and thorough. Uh, Bill Bright, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the founder of Campus Crusade, called this spiritual breathing. You exhale your sin through confession, and then you inhale God's forgiveness. So can you, can you honestly say, there's absolutely nothing between you and the Savior? Nothing between you and another person that you have not confessed and sought to make right as far as it is possible with you, because that is what is required to know the filling, controlling, empowering of the Holy Spirit. Look at the third condition, and that is to obey God's Word. Obey God's Word. Where there is obedience, uh, the Spirit empowers. Uh, the condition to obey God's Word really speaks of faith in God. Faith is nothing more than trusting obedience. I demonstrate or prove my trust in God by obeying His Word. As I step out to obey God's Word, even when I may not understand it, even when I am overwhelmed with weakness and inadequacy and impotence, the Holy Spirit's power then is released in my life to make up the difference. As it says of those in the great Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, from weakness were made strong. From weakness were made strong. Again, as they made that step of obedience, trusting God, He would release His power, and as a result, they became what? More like Christ. And not only more like Christ, they did things for Christ that they never would have believed possible apart from His empowerment. And that brings us to the fourth and final condition for the filling of the Holy Spirit, the one that I believe is the most important, and I'll stress why in just a moment, and that is I must yield to brokenness. I must yield to brokenness. Where there is brokenness, the Spirit is released. Now, look at the definition of brokenness that I've def uh, provided for you in your sermon notes. Brokenness is the lifelong process of God using adversity. So brokenness is a lifelong process of God using adversity. God using adversity to do what? To shatter all self-will and self-reliance 
in order to create absolute submission and reliance on God as a channel through which the Holy Spirit is released in the believer's life to reproduce Christ's character for the benefit of others. I'll repeat that one more time. Brokenness is a lifelong process of God using adversity to shatter all self-will and self-reliance in order to create absolute submission and reliance on God as a channel through which the Holy Spirit is released in the believer's life to reproduce Christ's character for the benefit of others. I mentioned two weeks ago the illustration of electricity. We know, of course, that electricity flows through wires and it flows freely in direct uh, proportion to the resistance that the wire offers. Lo- the lower the resistance, the more freely the electricity flows. And so the purpose of brokenness is God to break down the resistance. And this is why I believe that this is the most important matter when it comes to the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because here's reality, and we'll, I think we would all admit it. What did we say were the first three conditions? Surrender to Jesus. Total and absolute, maintaining a clear conscience, and the obedience of faith. Well, folks, that just doesn't happen naturally. We resist relinquishing control to God. True? We do. Each and every one of us. We do not find it easy to maintain a clear conscience. We are more interested in protecting our self-image what other people think about us than getting right with God, which does not create transparency, does not create honesty, does not create openness, but we wear masks. We wear to, to hide what we really are, to make people think we're more than what we really are uh, spiritually. And we just don't naturally just step out in quick obedience without delay. Uh, we, 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 we stumble through that process and we often resist and question God's wisdom and what He's asking of us. So my point is we cannot meet those three first three conditions without God accomplishing this process of brokenness in our lives. And we ended last week by just looking at the example of the Apostle Paul. And you see that there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse uh, 9. And uh, before I read the verse, again, let me just, again, give you the context in which the verse is found. You remember Paul, uh, we're told, was given by God a thorn in the flesh. He actually called that thorn in the flesh a messenger from Satan. But it was given to Paul by God. Now, why was it given to Paul by God? Paul tells us right in the context. He says, God gave this to me so that I would not become prideful, that I would not exalt myself, that I would remain humble, dependent, desperate for God. And Paul said, when God gave me this thorn in the flesh, it was so painful, it was so overwhelmingly difficult that I begged him on three different occasions, please God, take this from me, touch me, heal me. And here is God's answer to Paul. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, each time he, God said, 
Paul, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And then Paul responds, so now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. See, there's a great example of God using adversity to bring brokenness, to reduce His servant to weakness, to total reliance upon God, that He would know God's power of the Holy Spirit being perfected in Him to be displayed through Him. Now, just walk with me in your Bibles uh, through uh, a few of these points. Uh, Let's look at the principle, just the principle. Look at John 12. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 12. And then go ahead and turn over to uh, Isaiah 57. So have that ready. We'll look at John 12 first, and then we'll turn over to Isaiah chapter 57. Here's the principle. We see it in John 12 verse 24. Jesus speaking... He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And in verse 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Notice this uh, amazing illustration of the... uh, the grain or the seed of wheat. In other words, the principle that is seen here is that that grain or that seed of wheat contained life, right? It possessed life on the inside. But before that life could be released to produce fruit, that outer shell had to be broken. It had to be cracked and he Uh, makes that synonymous to death. It had to experience death of that outer shell through its cracking and breaking to release the life. And it's the same with you and I as believers. Yes, when we placed our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came to take up residence in our spirits. But that Holy Spirit is contained within this outer man of ours. And what is the outer man? It's our, it's our body. It's our, our soul. It's our mind, our will, our emotions. And although I may have been converted to Christ, that doesn't mean that suddenly that I am just perfectly righteous and holy. No, I have developed a lot of uh, wrong attitudes, a lot of wrong values, uh, wrong ways of thinking, wrong habits, conduct, all sorts of things. There is so much selfishness in Andy Merritt. There is so much pride in Andy Merritt. There is so much self-love in Andy Merritt. And it's that self-love, it's that self-will, it's that self-reliance that literally will entrap the Holy Spirit within us and prevent it from being released through us out to others as Christ's life is formed in us to be displayed out through us to others. And so God has to allow us to go through this broken process to release that life in and through us. In other words, to bring death to that self-will, to that self-reliance, that self-love. And as we experience that death through the broken process, as God reduces us, 
to just total surrender to him and reliance on him, then that cuts down that resistance. And the Holy Spirit is allowed to freely flow in and through us. Look at Isaiah 57. We see this same principle. Isaiah 57, look at verse 15. Verse 15, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and lowly place. And notice, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of of the contrite. That word contrite in the Hebrew is the word dakah. And you know what it literally means? It means to crumble. It means to be broken in pieces. And God is saying for that individual that becomes broken, that becomes humble before me, lowly before me, my spirit comes and uniquely what revives that individual, energizes that individual, empowers that individual so that my life again can be reproduced in them to be displayed through them. Look at the process. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's a good example of the process, how it actually works in the life of a believer. Uh, Hopefully in this you'll see what God is up to in your life right now. Because again, the reason this is so important, now listen to me as you turn there is because we do not understand the importance of this principle of brokenness, when God brings the adversity to accomplish the brokenness, we tend to resist the process itself. We think God is mad or angry with us, displeased with us, when He's only trying for our good and His greater glory to bring the brokenness that is needed. So I cannot shorten the process of brokenness, I have to yield to God, trusting Him. But folks, I can definitely prolong it by resisting God, by wasting my sorrows, not learning the lessons that He has for me in that adversity, and often we do that. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, begin reading with me at verse 6. It says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. And stop right there. What is this saying? It says, God has poured into our lives as believers His light and His life. But he says our lives are like these, uh, the, the word there for earthen vessel is really actually a very cheap, fragile clay pot. And so he says he's poured his life, he's poured his light into these lives of ours, these frail clay pots. And what does God want to do? He wants that light to be and life to be released. He doesn't want it to be just contained in Andy Merritt's life. No, he wants that life, that light, to be released for the benefit of others, to make Christ known to a lost world, to draw others to Christ, to benefit others. So what does he do? Well, we're told in the following verses, look at verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Notice, 
the four tools that God uses to bring brokenness to a believer's life. The first, he says, is what? We're afflicted. Affliction. It's the Greek word philipsis. And it literally means intense pressure to the point of agonizing pain. It's talking about stress, overwhelming stress. Paul alludes to this in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians when he talked about an adversity that he confronted where he says it was beyond his ability to cope with it. He says, he says it was beyond anything I could handle. And he said, I was so weighted down by, by it, I thought the sentence of death was written on me. And then he goes on to say, but the reason God allowed me to go through this overwhelming time of adversity and pain was so that I would learn not to trust in self, but a God who raises from the dead. Again, breaking him of self-reliance to teach him to rely wholly on God. And so God uses the instrument of affliction, adversity, trials, problems... To break us, again, of self-will, self-love, self-reliance. What's the second instrument he uses? Notice perplexity. Just hitting situations where you're totally confused, bewildered. Where you're just lost and you don't know what to do. And he allows you to go through that. To again, to bring you to that place of brokenness and to total dependence and desperation for God where there is no other hope but God. In other words, he'll bring you so low until there's no place to look but what? But up. Because that is not what we naturally do. We try to what? Manipulate our circumstances and situations. We look to this person or that person and God says, when are you going to look to me? And learn to rely on me and my adequacy. Look at the third tool that he uses, persecution, there in verse 9. Where you're attacked for your faith. Where you're belittled. Where you're mocked. Where you can even suffer abuse and injustice and mistreatment. You say God's going to allow his child to be abused, to be mistreated, to suffer injustice? Yes. Why would he do that? To break us. To break us of self-love again. To break us of self-will. To break us of self-reliance. And notice the fourth one, struck down. Uh, the, the Greek word there was often used in a, like a wrestling or a boxing match of someone basically getting knocked on their bottom. I mean, suffering such a severe blow that you're just knocked down in the contest. And God says, there's going to be times in your life I'm going to let you suffer such a severe blow that it is literally going to knock you on your back. It's going to just literally knock the wind out of you. But notice, as we went through those things, Notice, notice, notice God's love for his child. Yes, he's bringing brokenness, but there's limitations. He says, yes, I'm going to allow you to be afflicted, but not crushed. And yes, I'm going to allow you to be perplexed, but not to the point of total hopelessness and despair, because there's always hope in God. And yes, I may allow you to be persecuted, 
But you will never be forsaken because there's nothing that you will not walk through that I will not walk through with you to encourage you, to strengthen you and comfort, and if needed, to carry you. And yes, you may be knocked down in the contest, but you're never going to be knocked out because I will always be there, as it says in Ephesians 57. To what? To revive the lowly and the humble. To breathe my spirit in you. To know that filling and empowering to be able to continue on. And notice what the result of it is. Continue on now in verses 10, 11, and 12. What's God doing in all this? Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death. In other words, constantly knowing affliction and perplexity and persecution and being struck down. Why? For Jesus' sake. For the life of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be, may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. What is he saying? He's saying, here I am. This frail clay pot, God's poured his life and his love and his light into my life. And God's desire is that that life, that love, that light be released from me out to a lost world, out to the body of Christ for the benefit of others. It's not about me. It's about God's glory. It's about the benefit and welfare of others. And so what God does, he allows that fragile clay pot of mine begin to get broken. He begins to put cracks in it through affliction, through perplexity, through persecution, by getting knocked down in life's contest. And as I become broken, that light, that love, that life of Jesus is released through me. And that's what he means. Death works in us, but life works in you. As you see Jesus put on display through our lives. Because it's through this process of brokenness that God deals the death blow to my self-will, my self-reliance, my self-love. He cracks that outer man that I might know Christ produced in me to be displayed through me. And what's the purpose of it all? You don't have to turn to Matthew 5, 16. You know that verse. It's, what's the purpose? Let your light, what? Shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works to what? Glorify you? No, to glorify your Father who is in heaven. That the spotlight would be put on Him. That He would be exalted. That He would be magnified. And then the potter. And again, for the sake of time, we, let's not turn there. But you're, most of you are familiar with Jeremiah 18. It's where God told Jeremiah to go to the potter's house. And he saw this potter working on his will on this clay pot to prepare this vessel. And as he was working on the vessel, it says it became marred. It became spoiled in his hands. And you remember what the potter did? He broke it. And he didn't throw it away. He what? He remade it. And of course, in the context of Jeremiah, the message was this. The children of Israel had gone into rebellion as a result of their sin and rebellion because of their self-will, their self-love, their self-reliance. They had come under God's severe disciplining hand by the Babylonians who had destroyed Jerusalem, taken the people into captivity. And 
God is giving Jeremiah this picture, and in it he's saying, Jeremiah, look at that. The last word will not be the failure of my people. The last word will be the triumph of my love. To restore them, to remake them, as I use this captivity to break them of their self-will, to break them of their self-reliance and self-love, and return them to me. And that's exactly what God did. And the reason I want to emphasize the potter is the only way to make it through the brokenness process is to keep your eyes on the potter and just yield to the process, trusting him that he knows what he's doing in your life. And then the examples as we move into the Lord's Supper. Look at that. It's a great quote by Dr. Alan Redpath. He says, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible individual, as you and I, and, and crushes him. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible individual, in other words, a stubborn, obstinate, self-willed, self-reliant individual, and he crushes him. And we see that. I, I just listed a few of the Bible characters. I mean, you could just go on and on. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Peter, Paul. I mean, think of Abraham, the infertility issues with him and Sarah offering Isaac. And it was Abraham, as we of all those years of brokenness, that he's finally able to come to the place and say, I could look right at the deadness of Sarah's womb and at my infern body. And without even staggering unbelief, I gave glory to God, believing he was able to perform that what he promised. But that didn't happen overnight, did it? It took years for him to get to that place as God broke brokenness. Because you know the story, how they tried to manipulate the situation and achieve God's will on their own. So they would have never been surrendered to God. They would have never known a clear conscience. They would have never known the obedience of faith without first the process of brokenness and yielding to that process and learning the lessons God had for them. How about Jacob? Talking about a believer that was a conniver and a deceiver and a manipulator. I don't know that there's his equal in the Scripture. And for years, he lived with deception lived as a manipulator, lived as a conniver. And then he had that encounter with God, where God what? They had that wrestling match with God, and God what? Broke him. And he became a changed man. How about Joseph? God gave this young man great promises, wonderful promises. But God knew that he wasn't ready for the fulfillment of those promises until he would know brokenness. So he allowed him to suffer great injustice at the hands of his brothers as they sold him into slavery. He ends as a slave in Potiphar's house. He gets falsely accused of trying to rape his, Potiphar's wife. He gets thrown in a lousy Egyptian prison for years. And we estimate from the time that he was sold into slavery, from the time that he was elevated, as you know, to sort of prime minister of Egypt as a result of interpreting Pharaoh's dream, third long years of darkness, despair, adversity. Brokenness was taking place. So that when God would elevate him to fulfill those promises, he would have the character to handle it. Not in pride, but in humility. Not exalting self, but exalting God. How about Moses? 
Oh man, Moses. Miraculously delivered by God as a, as a little baby. His mother sent him down the Nile River in that little basket boat. Raised in Pharaoh's household. Educated, brilliant man. Brilliant military uh, commander. Uh, he's uh, accorded great feats uh, with the Egyptians. Uh, and he was greatly uh, honored and adored by them. And then, as he became adult, he sided with his people, the Jewish people. And remember, he rose up against that Egyptian that was abusing the Israel servant. But that wasn't God's way. He did it in all sincerity. He did it in trying to please God, but it was not God's way. And so what did God do? He put him on the backside of a desert for how long? How long? Forty years. What was God doing in those 40 years? Breaking this man. Breaking this man of his self-will, of his self-reliance, of his self-love to prepare him to be the deliverer of his people. How about David? David was anointed to be king by Samuel. Everything's going great for David. He kills Goliath. He becomes the commander of the people, of the armies under Saul. He's exalted by the people. They're singing songs to the boy. He's knowing nothing but material blessings, just tremendous prosperity in every which way. He's, he's, he's right in line to, hey, hey, yeah, it's going to all work out. Then what happens? He becomes the number one fugitive in all of Israel. He becomes a wanted criminal. Has to flee in the wilderness to save his life where for over several years, God uses that to break this guy. And if you study David's life, what God did, he literally took every crutch that David would lean on, and he would literally kick it out from underneath his, his body, and every single time. When he took Samuel away, he took Jonathan away, he takes his position away, he takes his self-respect away, and he just ends up in this old cave out in the wilderness in just a dismal failure and total despair. And God says, okay, David, I finally got you right where you need you, where I need you. And David got to the place where the exaltation of God became more important to him than escaping the cave, escaping the wilderness. Because he came to learn that the nearness of God is his good. And anything that draws him nearer to God, anything that creates dependence and desperation and determination, that's good. And he came to realize that God was using this adversity to bring brokenness, and he praised God for it. And then one more. We already mentioned uh, Paul, but how about Peter? How about Peter? Think about this. I am, I am absolutely convinced that Peter would have never known the filling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Unless he first would have denied Christ. I'm convinced of it. Because if you study the Gospels, Peter loved Jesus. Amen? Just like you love Jesus. But I'll tell you something else about Peter. There was a lot of junk mixed with his devotion to Jesus. There was a lot of impurity. There was a lot of self-will, a lot of self-reliance, a lot of self-love. 
Peter sincerely desired to follow Christ, but he had not yet learned that in his own strength he could not. And he learned something in the denial of Christ that he could never have learned in any other place in life. And folks, there are some things that can't be learned other than in failure. And God realizes that. Many times we need failure, dismal failure, to break us of that stinking self-will again, self-reliance, self-love. And that's what happened in Peter through the denial. He just literally broke that man to prepare that man for the filling of the Holy Spirit and to be able to be used as God desired to use him. So as we come to the Lord's table, we come to one who knows brokenness, right? Jesus was broken for you. Not broken like we're broken. He didn't have a problem with self-will, self-reliance, self-love. No, he was broken because of his love for you. His love for me. As he bore your sin on Calvary's sin, on Calvary's tree and rose again to offer you new life. And then as we celebrate this Lord's Supper, don't ever lose sight of the fact that the potter that shapes your life, that shapes your circumstances, the hands of that potter are the what? Nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. You need not doubt His love. And it's only His love that gives us the ability to yield to the brokenness process to let him have his way in our hearts and lives. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your love in not only sending Jesus to die for our sins and cancel out our sin debt and impute his righteousness to us to give us a right standing before you, but thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the process of brokenness, as difficult as it is, as painful as it is, that you use that process of brokenness to bring us to the fullness of the Holy Spirit, to a place of usefulness in your hands as Christ's life is reproduced in us to be displayed through us. So, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table now, we come with hearts filled with gratitude and appreciation who you are, what you did for us, what you are now doing for us, and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask the elders and the uh, staff, uh, or deacons, uh, to get in their places. Uh, what I would uh, encourage you to do is you come forward to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper this morning is simply, w- would you be willing to do this? As you come, take the elements. As you focus and remember the one who died and rose again for you, as you partake of the elements, would you be willing to say, God, I yield to you. I yield to the broken process. Lord, I acknowledge my fear that I find it scary to yield. I find it scary to relinquish my life to you, but Lord, how foolish it is for me to be afraid because you're only committed to my good. 
You're the one who loves me with a perfect love that only wants my best and only wants to use me for the benefit of others. So that would be my challenge to you. That would be the primary invitation that as you come to partake, that you would just yield to the brokenness, broken process. God initiates that. All you can do is yield to the potter's hand and not resist him and say, although I may not understand, thank you, Lord, and let me learn the lesson that you have for me. So let me invite you to come. Come, partake of the bread that represents his body, crucified for you, and his blood shed for you. Come. Father, we acknowledge that Jesus is all we need. But we also acknowledge we will never really know he's all we need until he's all we have. And so, Lord, we need the brokenness process. Lord, we acknowledge that we just become satisfied too easily. We are too anchored and rooted in this world. We have so little of an eternal perspective. Father, we confess that we do battle with self-love, with self-will, self-reliance. And so, Lord, we come to you as individuals, as families, as a church family, and we yield. We yield to you. We yield to the process of brokenness, knowing that it is a necessity if you are to bring us to the place where you can truly use us as Christ's life is truly produced in us to be displayed through us. Lord, forgive us for so often resisting the process, for instead of viewing adversity as a welcome friend that is your tool, uh, we resist as intruders. Um, and we even become angry with you. We even become disappointed with you. Uh, so, Lord, all we know to do is cast ourselves uh, on your mercy. And so we do acknowledge you are the potter. We are the clay. And even when we become marred, spoiled, by our own self-will and self-reliance. You have that ability to break, uh, to remake us, and to use us for your honor and for your glory. So, Father, we yield this church family to you that you would uh, do whatever it takes. We just relinquish control of this church to you. And uh, so, Lord, you do whatever is needed in our lives uh, to accomplish your purposes that we might become a loving bride of Jesus, that would love him as he ought to be loved, that we would become a healthy body to walk as Jesus walked, to seek and save those who are lost, and where we could provide you a holy habitation, where you could dwell comfortably to have your way and to have your will. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.